After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And, body, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is the word of the Lord. Believe it or not, I can remember a time when we attended funerals. When I was growing up, there were quite a few funerals. And I, I recall going to more funerals than weddings. Now, that may not have been true. I don't know. But it just seemed that way. We don't have funerals anymore. We have home-going celebrations. I never knew what that was growing up. Now we have home-going celebrations. We don't like to talk about death. So instead, we talk about celebrating life. But you know the interesting thing about those life celebrations? Is that death is still the predominant issue while we're there celebrating life. So I get it. We don't like to talk about it. But I want to suggest to you this morning, beloved, that while the world don't, doesn't like to talk about it, the Christian must understand that death is not an intruder to be ignored. Death is not a friend to be celebrated, but an enemy destined to be defeated. And this is what we have in Jesus. Death is a thief. A real thief. It steals from us. It causes us to suffer some of the greatest losses in our lives. We lose parents. We lose pets. We lose children and spouses. We lose friends, family members. And in this, death regularly asserts itself as our enemy. And yet, the Bible reminds us that it is an enemy that Christ came to destroy. In John chapter 10, in verse 10, the Bible says, The thief comes to steal and to kill and destroy, 
But Christ says, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. And yet here is the irony. Here is the irony of it all. In order for us to have life, Christ has to die. In order to destroy death, Christ had to enter into death himself. If our Lord was to embrace and empathize with the fullness of the human experience, he had to die. Christ didn't come to this life just to live. He came to die. That you and I, that you and I might live. He came to destroy the ultimate enemy of what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 26, calls the last enemy. The ultimate enemy, the last enemy, death. But in order to put an end to death, Jesus had to die. Really, really die. As we saw last week. The post-crucifixion scene was proof that Jesus died. I mean, really died. But as we'll see this morning, there was not just one scene. There was not just one post-crucifixion scene. There were two. Two post-crucifixion scenes. And so we continue this theme of looking at the scenes that remind us that Jesus not only died, but the Bible wants to make sure that we know this because he was also buried. He died and he was buried. There was a funeral because death had come. And those around Jesus suffered loss. There was no ignoring this. There was no hoping that this would go away. Death had come. Jesus had died. And not only died, But he had to be buried. There must be a funeral. Because Jesus was dead. And how do we know he was dead? Because they buried him. They buried him, beloved. And the burial of Jesus may seem like a little 
an insignificant thing. And I get it. In the grand scheme of things, it probably is. Because what really matters, right, is that he died. And what really matters is that after he died, he was raised. That's what we sing about. When our songs don't say anything about him being buried. He went to the grave, they rolled a stone in front of it, then they rolled a stone away and he rose up from the... That's what we talk about. He died and he raised and he was raised. And the important things to believe are in the crucifixion and the resurrection. And yet in between, in between the death and the resurrection of Jesus is the important fact that Jesus was buried. And his burial signified real death. In fact, understanding the gospel is understanding a real death and actual burial. That's what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. But Paul there is rehearsing the gospel. He says, what, for what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he, ra- that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, beloved, I don't want you to misunderstand me this morning. The burial of Jesus does not make you more saved. Okay, in Romans chapter 4 and verse 5, the Bible says that Jesus died for our sins and that he was raised for our justification. It doesn't say anything about his burial. He died for our sins. He was raised for our justification. And yet, what I want to suggest to you this morning It's something I believe is very important, and it comes to us by way of the burial of Jesus Christ. Because I think the burial of Jesus Christ has significance for discipleship this morning. On what it means to be a disciple. The burial made a difference in the lives of the disciples of Jesus then. And I want to suggest to you this morning that it points to important principles in the lives of disciples now. It's important to remember, as we made the point last week, that by the time that John was inspired to write this gospel, there were already theories and and false stories that were going around about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the burial portion, here in the gospel, as well in other gospels, the burial portion of the death of Jesus is important because it gives further evidence to the truth and the reality of the death and subsequent resurrection. It says a few things. It's pointing to a few truths that needed to be asserted again. And the first one was that no one stole the body. 
No one stole the body. Joseph asked Pilate for it. And Pilate had been assured that Jesus was dead. No one stole the body. No one imagined a fake's death. But Joseph and Nicodemus prepared the body. They had the funeral. They wrapped the body. They prepared it for burial. No one faked the funeral. Joseph and Nicodemus and their servants performed it. And Jesus didn't all of a sudden wake up out of a coma and escape. Because not only did they wrap him, but they placed him in the tomb. They placed him in the tomb. And beloved, the importance of this small section of Scripture, once again, is to make sure that the testimony of the church and the disciples of Jesus is that the resurrection really happened because the burial really happened. The burial scene, therefore, is important because it gives insight into the life of the disciples of Christ. Now, beyond the fact that it gives testimony to the reality of the resurrection, it also gives testimony to the meaning of what it means to be a disciple. What does it mean to be a disciple? It means two things. It's faith and worship. That's what being a disciple of Christ is. You want to boil it down. It's faith and worship. We are those who walk by faith and not by sight. We are those called out of bondage to sin to worship God. It's what it means to be a disciple. Faith and worship. Disciples live by faith. Disciples live to worship. Disciples are saved through faith. Disciples are saved to worship. Disciples are called in faith. Disciples are called to worship. Faith and worship is what it means to be a disciple. It is what defines our lives. It is what orders our steps. It is what governs our daily living. Faith and worship.
everything we are, beloved. We are by faith. And everything we do is an exercise in worship. This is what we see this morning at the burial of Jesus. The burial of Jesus brings out the essence of discipleship, of what it means to follow Jesus. Faith and worship. Because Jesus was buried by faith. He was buried by faith. That's what it says in verse 38. Afterward, Joseph of Arimathea, who had been a secret disciple of Jesus, because he feared the Jewish leaders, asked Pilate for permission to take down Jesus' body. When Pilate gave permission, Joseph came and took the body away. Now, beloved, the life of the disciple is the life of faith. All of Jesus' disciples have faith. It's what it means to be a disciple. However, it's important to understand that not everyone's faith is the same. But everyone still has it. Everyone has faith. But not everyone's faith is the same. And yet here is the glorious reality of it. Is that sooner or later, God makes sure, if you have it, that it shows up. Sooner or later. Listen, beloved. Jesus was taken down from the cross. But the interesting thing about it is that Jesus was not taken down by strangers. He was not taken down by agents of Pilate or agents of Caesar. Jesus was taken down and he was buried by his disciples. Now, you would naturally think, well, of course. Of course his disciples buried him. That's what you do. When friends and loved ones die, those closest to them take their body, perform the prayers, the ceremonies, place them in the grave. That's what friends and family and close associates do. Of course his disciples came to get the body of Jesus. They were the ones closest to him. But isn't it interesting that it wasn't Peter? It wasn't James. It wasn't Andrew. It wasn't even John. 
It was Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. It wasn't Peter who asked for the body. It wasn't James. It was Joseph of Arimathea. He was not a member of the 12. Beloved, he wasn't even a member of the 72 that you find in Luke chapter 10. No one even knew that Joseph was even in the family at all. Who had any idea that he was a disciple? In fact, if you had told Peter that Joseph was a disciple, Peter would have took the Twitter, <laughs> calling him out, false, fake. And so the Bible calls him a secret disciple. Or one who believed but was afraid for others to know because of what it might cost him. Now, the interesting thing is, he's a secret to other people, but he was no secret to Jesus. But Jesus knows those who are his own, and he knows where they are. He knows why they are. He already said so. The Bible already says so in John chapter 12 and verse 42 to 43. Yet at the same time, many among the leaders, among the Sanhedrin, among the council, Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus amongst these, Many among the leaders believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith, for they feared that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than the praise of God. And amongst these, amongst these, apparently was Joseph. Amongst these, apparently, were Nicodemus. And they were kindred spirits in their fear. They were kindred spirits in their fear. Why? Because they were among the political and the social elite. And they understood that one misstep might not only cost them their position but could easily cost them their lives. And they were afraid of losing either. They wanted to hold on to both. And so most people wouldn't even have considered them disciples. How could they be? How could they be? After all, they were members of the Sanhedrin. How could they be? After all, they belonged to an institution that openly opposed Christ, right? They belong to an institution that openly opposed Jesus. How could they possibly be disciples? Beloved, it is important to remember that the grace 
and mercy of God reaches into places we doubt it's even possible to go. Take a moment, if you will, and step back with me out of your holy evangelical enclave and listen what the Bible is teaching us this morning. There are Christians, disciples of Jesus, in places we deem unfriendly to the Christian cause. They are there within the walls of political power and halls of justice. There are disciples who are politicians and lawyers and judges. There's a witness of Jesus there in institutions of higher learning. There are disciples of Jesus at Harvard. There are disciples of Jesus at Yale. There are disciples of Jesus at Princeton. Even Agnes Scott. There are people who are trusting the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. And seemingly all of the humanistic sciences. In the science of philosophy, there are Christians. In the science of sociology and biology and physics, there are Christians. There are disciples in the entertainment business. Some movies or the stage, whether it's Hollywood or Broadway. There are those who are there who are disciples of Jesus. There are Christians in music. There are Christians in hip-hop. There are Christians in reggae. There are Christians in rock. There are Christians in jazz. And we all know that's Christians in country because that's all they are as Christians. There are Christians, beloved. There are disciples of Jesus. The grace and the mercy of Jesus reaches in the places that you and I would deem most ungodly. And the Lord has his disciples, often secret, not yet called to mission, but one day, as the Lord sees fit, we'll be called upon from the street gangs to the poorest of poor to the richest of rich, kings, queens, and peasants. The Lord has disciples because his grace knows no bounds. And his mercy, no limits. It's hard to believe, isn't it? I know from where you sit, it's hard to believe. From where we are and how we think, it's hard to believe. Who would have thought that Nick, Ademus, and Joseph were disciples of Jesus? Nobody. Nobody would have imagined that. None of the other disciples, not even those close to Nicodemus and Joseph would have thought that. And here they were, beloved. Here they were. And when the other disciples run away 
in fear. Here is Joseph and Nicodemus. Now, beloved, were they afraid? Yes. Yes. They too were afraid. And yet, they were faithful. Afraid, but faithful. That seemed contradictory this, this morning, doesn't it? Afraid and yet faithful. Well, beloved, I want to suggest to you again that faith is not the absence of fear. Like courage, faith is acknowledging your fear but believing anyway. It is the prayer of the father who whose son had been possessed by demons and taken him to Jesus' disciples, and his disciples apparently could not do anything for him. And so then the man called on Jesus. In Mark chapter 9, verse 24, and Jesus looked at him and said, If you believe, all things are possible. And the father cried with tears, Lord, I believe but help me to overcome my unbelief. Were Joseph and Nicodemus afraid? Sure they were. Sure they were, beloved. The political climate was tense, and people were out for blood. And one, one political misstep could be fatal. And yet in the midst of that fear, you know what the Bible says in Mark chapter 15 and verse 43? It says, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Took courage. Listen, beloved, there at that moment, the Spirit of God, whatever faith was there, the Spirit of God set it on fire. And whereas no one up to that point ever knew that that faith ever existed, Joseph, seeing his Lord hanging on a cross, took courage. Enough is enough. If they were secret before, they were not secret anymore. But this is what faith does, beloved. This is what faith does. This is what the grace and the mercy of God does. This is what it produces in our lives. Sooner or later, sooner or later, the flicker becomes a flame. Sooner or later, the flicker becomes a flame. 
Listen to me. Listen to me this morning. Fear grips us all. It grips us all. At some point in time in our Christian lives, if we are honest, we are not all brave heart Christians. And if God abandoned me every time that I fail to give a clear and present testimony of Jesus, where would I be? In fact, that's what the Bible says in Psalm 130 and verse 3. If the Lord, if you, Lord, kept records of sin, Lord, where could we stand? If the Lord kept records of all of your times of fear, where would you be? If the Lord kept records of all the times of your spiritual cowardness, where would you be? Thankfully, by his mercy and his grace, he doesn't count our failures or our fears against us, beloved. He loves us through them all. Where was Peter? Where was Peter? The rock. The boisterous one. Where was Peter? Peter denied the Lord out of fear. The other disciples ran away from the cross, and they were hiding. Why? Out of fear. Even John didn't dare ask for the body of Christ. Why? Out of fear. And yet, beloved, the good news is this, is that despite all of their fears, Christ loved them all. And guess what? Guess what? I get good news. He loves you too. As fearful and as frightened as you are, even some of you this morning, the Lord loves you too. And yet here was Joseph and Nicodemus. Once fear had moved them to be silent. Now faith was causing them to speak up. Why? Why? Why, beloved? Why the change? Because, beloved, Jesus was not going to be buried by fear. If Jesus was going to be buried... It was going to have to take faith. Somebody would have to be moved by faith. That's what a disciple is. That's what a disciple is. Those who are moved by faith. Those who are called by faith. Those who are saved through faith. Jesus was buried by his disciples who were moved and called by faith. That's what it means to be a disciple. At that moment, who would you bet was more disciple of Jesus. Nicodemus or Peter? 
at that moment, who would you bet was more disciple of Jesus? Joseph or James? Beloved, Jesus was not going to get buried by fear. It was going to take faith. And while Peter and James and John didn't have it at that moment, thank God that God had his disciples in secret places that he could call upon and be moved by faith. That's what discipleship is. It's faith. And so Jesus was buried by faith, but he was not only buried by faith, he was buried in worship because that's what disciples do. That's what disciples do. When Jesus was crucified, Pilate put above his head the words. Remember the words. What did they read? King of the Jews. And they thought that it was a mockery. Pilate thought it was a mockery. The Jews thought it was blasphemous. But it was neither blasphemous nor a mockery, beloved. It was the testimony of God. And what the burial does is remind us of this as well. When you come to Jesus, even in death, you come to a king. You come to a king. You see in verse 39, he, Nicodemus, I mean he, Joseph of Arimathea, was accompanied by Nicodemus, a man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Joseph of Arimathea was a secret disciple. Nicodemus liked to walk around in the dark. And Nicodemus, it says, brought a mixture of myrrh and alloys, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of linen, and this was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. This is what they did. It was time for a funeral. And they're preparing Jesus' body to be buried. Because Jesus is dead. Really dead. And such preparation was not unusual. This is what they did with bodies. They had funerals. Jesus went to funerals. They didn't stay funerals. But he was there. Funerals happened all the time. And they prepared bodies all the time for burial. You recall in John chapter 11, when Jesus comes and raised Lazarus from the dead, the Bible says in 1144 that Jesus 
when he raised Lazarus from the dead, he commanded them to unwrap him from the linen clothes of the dead. Why? Because this is what you did to prepare dead bodies. Perfume and spices, wrap them in linen cloths. Place them in the tomb. So what they were doing with Jesus was not unusual. Except Nicodemus thought to bring 75 pounds of spices, 75 pounds of perfumes. My wife don't even have that much. I mean, she's got a lot. 75 pounds? Well, maybe, let me think about that. 75 pounds? This was more than could be expected for a common man. Definitely more than should be expected for a criminal. But this reminds us again that Jesus was no common man. This type of preparation would be saved for the wealthy. This type of preparation would be saved for the important. This type of preparation would be saved for the royalty. This type of preparation would be afforded to a king. And here was Nicodemus introducing the worship of Jesus as king. Nicodemus knew and he understood that he was not coming unto his equal. He was coming unto his better. He was coming unto his master. He was coming unto his Lord. He was coming unto a king. He was coming unto a king, beloved. You remember when Jesus was born as a child? The Bible tells us that the wise men came bringing gold, frankincense, and mirth. Why did they bring gold, frankincense, and mirth? Because they said, we have come to worship the one who has been born king. And now, at his death, here is Nicodemus bringing 75 pounds of aloes, 75 pounds of myrrh and perfume. And I'm sure his servants are saying, Master, why do we need 75 pounds? Because we have come to worship the one who was born but now has died as king, as king. Listen, beloved, we don't like kings in our country. We don't like kings. We don't like people who assume that they're king, who talk like they're king, who act like they're king. We don't like kings in America. We do away with kings. 
We'd rather have presidents and governors that we can elect and reject every few years. Because we don't want tyrants and tyranny. And we want to have a say in who governs us and who doesn't, which means we want to govern ourselves. And beloved, I got news for you this morning. The kingdom of God is not a democracy. The kingdom of God is not a republic. The kingdom of God has a king. He is a sovereign king. He is a loving king. He is a gracious king. He is a king full of grace and mercy. And he is a king worthy of worship. And that's why we sing, oh, worship the king. Oh, worship the king, all glorious above. Oh, gratefully sing of his power and his love. Our shield and defender, the ancient of days, pavilioned and splendored, and girded with praise. Girded with praise because we worship a king. And such was the honor and such was the faith of Nicodemus. And he was determined to pay to his Lord. This is the glory and worship that Nicodemus was willing to pay. And here again was the faith of Nicodemus growing, growing, growing. Here was evidence of what our Lord had come to do. Nicodemus came to the Lord by night. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13 reminds us that the cross of Jesus calls us out of darkness. This is what Nicodemus was witnessing because this is what the Lord does. This is what the difference the cross makes. Calls people out of darkness into the light as Peter reminds us in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, that we are that people. We are that people who have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are that people. Nicodemus gives witness to being that person in the kingdom of God, called out of darkness into the marvelous light of the Lord, whereby now you worship. That's what the old saints used to sing. Look where the Lord and brought me from. Look where the Lord and brought me from. Brought me out of darkness into his marvelous light. Look where the Lord has brought me from. Here is, don't get excited, Brother B. This is the faith of Nicodemus reminding us something very important, beloved. This is the worship of a king, and it's worth it. 75 pounds, I'll bring 175 pounds. Why? Because worship costs. Worship costs. 
This is no little feat, what Nicodemus is doing here, beloved. This is no little feat, what Joseph of Arimathea has done here. This is no little thing. It took courage. It took faith. It took risk of loss. Whatever they were afraid of before, they were willing to risk for the worship of Jesus. And they spent, they spent well. That burial plot was expensive. 75 pounds of perfume and oils was expensive. But more expensive than the burial plot and more expensive than the perfume was their personal associations. It was done. It was over. Whatever secrets they had before, there would be no more secrets now. They were out. They were disciples of Jesus. And everyone would know it. And they were willing to pay. Why? Because being a Christian is not cheap. It is not cheap. Our Lord gave his all for you. What are you willing to give to him this morning? What are you holding back? You holding back your treasure? The Lord has blessed you and given you the ability to get wealth. And all you can do is spend the time consuming it upon yourself. And your own pleasure, what are you holding back from the worship of God? Is it your treasure? Or perhaps it's your time. Perhaps it's your time. You got time to go to work. You got time to go to school. You got time to play golf. You got time to play soccer. You got time to go to football practice. You got time to go flip around in the gym. You got time for everything else. But you have no time to worship. What are you holding back this morning? It's your talent. Maybe it's your treasure, maybe it's your time, maybe it's your talent. You got time to give to that organization, to that school. You got time to be in that uh, neighborhood association. You got time to involve yourself in all these political arguments and and all these political debates, but when it comes time to serve in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have no talents for that. Nicodemus and Joseph spent it all. Time, treasure, even the risk of life. What are we doing? What are we doing this morning? 
when David was offered the threshing floor so that he might build an altar to God. When they heard that David was building an altar to God, the one who owned the threshing floor told David, David, I donate the threshing floor to you. And you know what David said in 2 Samuel 24 and 24? No, I insist on paying for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. Worship costs. And Nicodemus and Joseph were for real. And you know how you know they were for real? Because they were willing to pay. Not just money, but they were willing to let it be known that they loved the Lord and that he was their king. Not Pilate, not Herod, not Caesar, Jesus. What, 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 beloved, are we willing to do? They were willing to give up their lives because Jesus had given his. And beloved, the Lord never, never, the Lord never asks of his people but that which he himself is willing to do. And so, he who died for us calls us to come and die for him. He who lived for us calls us to come and live for him. And this is what Joseph and Nicodemus were willing to do because they were disciples. Because this is what disciples do. They worship. This is what disciples are willing to pay because Jesus paid it all. And all to him I Sin had left the crimson stain, and he washed it white as snow. Why? Why? Why are you here, Nicodemus? Why are you here, Joseph of Arimathea? Because when I look at the cross, I can't help but say, all to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever live and trust him. And in his presence, daily live. I surrender all. Because that's what disciples do. Let's pray.